So my name's Rachel and I have the privilege of um, continuing our series that we're looking at over the past couple of months. Um, and we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, if you didn't know that already, that's where we are. And today we've got to chapter 16. So if you want to turn to chapter 16, if you've got a Bible, then please do that now because um, we'll be reading through that in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, so we have been uh, working through this last couple of months and tried to answer the question that Jesus asked. And the question was, who do you say I am? So that's our preaching series title. And um, we've been looking at who Jesus is. We've been looking at him uh, as God coming down in the flesh as a human. We've been looking at him as a good teacher, as a healer, um, as a kind man. Um, and then today in chapter 16, we, um, as we read through it, we'll firstly see that Jesus interacts with um, various people. He interacts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how he interacts with the disciples. And this is actually the passage where Jesus actually asks that ultimate question of who do you say I am? So we get to see the disciples' answers in this. And then we also get to think about that question for ourselves today. So I'm going to be reading, I'm not going to read the whole passage in one go, but we'll read it in stages. Um, so please keep up with me if you can. But the first um, bit that we're going to read is just verse one. So chapter 16, verse one, it says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. So first of all, we've read on a number of occasions in this gospel already that the Pharisees and Sadducees often came to Jesus. And this was because they wanted to challenge him and they wanted to test him. And this is just another one of those occasions. So these are groups of religious leaders that completely opposed each other. So it was really strange in itself that they would come together because they didn't agree with anything in particular, but it's because they really did disagree with what Jesus was doing and what he was saying. They didn't want someone to come and mess up their plans. They didn't want someone to come in and take the focus away from their rule so they saw Jesus, who did come in to the situation, as a threat to their leadership and a threat to their power. And if they could find a way to trip Jesus up, they were going to do it. So they came demanding Jesus, a sign to, from heaven, to see what he was going to do. And it wasn't because they were kind of interested in what he was doing. It wasn't because they thought, well, if I see Jesus do one more sign, I might actually start following him and start believing him. It wasn't because of that. What they wanted was to see how he would respond so that they could find him at fault and stop him doing his ministry. So even though they'd seen Jesus working and teaching, they'd seen so many miracles that he had done. Their hearts were so focused on their lives and what they were doing, their hearts would become hardened and so full of stubbornness that even if they were to see another sign from heaven, they weren't going to change their hearts. They'd already made up their minds about Jesus before they asked him to prove himself. We've probably all got that one friend, you know, that loves to prove themselves where you say to them, I bet you can't do that. And they say, well, I can. And then your response is always, well, we'll prove it then. I wonder if you know anyone like this, or maybe this is yourself. Well, anyway, there's, there's always a moment that pride takes over. And you have to take on that challenge because if you don't, then you could shine, uh, so sh show signs of weakness or doubt within yourself and you want to prove yourself that you can do it. Well, thankfully, Jesus actually isn't like this. He could have easily shown them a sign. He had the power to perform miracles. He had that power. But he wasn't doing it because he was full of pride. He wasn't doing it for attention and he didn't have to prove anything to these people. He didn't give in to any of their requests when they said, prove it then. 
But he does say one thing, and that's in verse 2. We carry on reading. He said, he replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So he's here, here, he's saying, you're so capable of looking at the weather around you and saying all these things, and, and you're satisfied with what that's saying to you. But you seem so unwilling to see the multiple signs that I have shown you of who I am and who has sent me. You're so unsatisfied with what you're seeing around you. And then he has one more thing to say to them before he goes away in verse four. And he says, a wicked and adulterous generation. This is who he's saying of them. You look for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left and went away. So this is not the first time that he's had contact with the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is not the first time that they've come to him asking for a sign. A few chapters before this one, it expands on it a little bit where Jesus actually said to them, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So you may already know the story of Jonah. A lot of us have probably read that in our Bibles or stories about Jesus. And it always seemed like that crazy story where a man jumped out of a boat into a, a, a great, the belly of the great fish and then got yeah, swallowed up and then spat out three days later. So this sign of Jonah that Jesus is pointing to actually directs um, them and points them to the coming Messiah. It points to his death, to his burial and his resurrection. So jo- just as Jonah was buried in a whale's belly and returned after three days, Jesus says, this is a sign that he will also rise from the dead after three days. And this is all he needed to say to them. This is all he needed to point them to. And then he left and went away. So once he'd done that, he was walking along with his disciples. And in verse five, we'll carry on reading a little bit. It says, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, is it because we didn't bring any bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I love that little bit. It just shows how real the disciples were. They were so lost at this point. And there are instances in these, in these Gospels that we can read that the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you on about? This was one of those moments where they, were completely, that, where they completely misunderstood Jesus. If Had they have realised what had happened before, they knew that even if they had forgotten bread, Jesus would have been able to find it anyway. But Jesus' mind was probably still on the fact that the Pharisees were around and that they were testing him and, and asking him to prove himself to them. But in this moment when the, the disciples were hung up in their own little situation with their lost lunch or their forgotten lunch, he took that time to teach his disciples not to be swayed by the false teaching from the Pharisees and Sadducees. He was like, don't be tempted by them. Don't be tempted by those around you that are, their, their voices are loud. Don't be tempted, don't be swayed by them. And then we get to the big question, our title, our series title of Who Do You Say I Am? This is what we can read in verse 13, and I'll read a few more verses. 
um, from verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by the, uh, by the flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gate of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So Jesus here, he's travelled away uh, with his disciples to a region called Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking around, he then stops and asks them this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? So he's definitely picked his moment. It was a perfect location. It was away from the busyness of the crowds. It was away from personal persecution. And this was the place where he knew that he could spend some real decent time with his disciples and have these deep conversations. Maybe you've been in situations before where you know that you've had to have some serious conversations, maybe with your friends or your family or your colleagues or those around you, and you want to pick the per perfect, most suitable place for it. Well, this was that moment for Jesus. This was that moment where he knew that he had to ask his disciples this important question. He often re referred to himself as the Son of Man. He has said, who do, who do you think the Son of Man is? And the disciples knew this, so they answered him with names that they knew that the crowds around them had been referring to him. They said names like John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. The Old Testament had prophecies that looked forward to the coming Messiah, who the Jewish people expected to come in a sort of package like a powerful prophet-type figure, much like these that I've just mentioned. So many believed that Jesus was a figure just like those. So Jesus hears those answers, but he doesn't dwell on those answers from the crowds. He goes from a general question to a really personal question, straight to his followers. But who do you say I am? It's now a personal question. It's not about what the crowds think and what they say, but it's important what, the, the, what his disciples say. He's the one walking alongside daily, them daily. He's the one teaching them things. He's the one that really loves them and cares for them. And he wanted to know whether they had fully grasped who he said he was and who had sent him. And it's not because he was unsure of who he was. It's not because he needed their validation or anything. But he just wanted to hear them articulate who they thought he was for themselves. So we've read here that Peter, and he's one of Jesus' followers and really close friend, he answered Jesus, but not with the same answer that the crowds had been saying. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. Well, now that was a different answer. This is the first time that someone had called Jesus the Messiah. In your Bible translation, you might have the word Christ. And both words, Messiah and Christ, both mean anointed one. And both of them are used to describe Jesus. And Jesus responds like, yes, Peter, you've got it. You have understood who I am. He's so pleased to have heard those words come from Peter's mouth. And he goes on to say, God has revealed this to you. No one here on earth could have taught you this, but it's only from God that you can see that. So many people, us included, can read the Bible 
and sees and reads stories about Jesus. Or you may have read loads of other books about Jesus with all the information that you might need to know. Or you've probably watched things about Jesus and you can come to a conclusion yourself of who you think Jesus is. But it makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear in this passage that it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, of God himself coming to us, that we can actually see Jesus fully for who he is. And I think we do that with Jesus, but we also do it with each other too. For example... So I'm a mum and I'm a music tutor and I work in various schools around Peterborough. And when I go into these schools, uh, the teachers and various pupils know me as Rachel, the music teacher. That's probably because they've heard me in the music room or seen me in the corridor. But they don't know me much more than that. That's because they haven't spent time with me. It's because they only know what I do, not of who I am. Or maybe you've been in a situation where you've had to write a CV before for a job and you've written all about yourself and your skill set and a little bit about you and your qualifications and your hopefully future employer may read it and think, oh yeah, I know all about them. But actually it's only when they get to spend time with you that they can fully understand who you are and not about what you can do. So in the same way, as I just said, it's only when God's Holy Spirit comes into our hearts that we can fully understand who Jesus is. And that's why this question that Jesus asked is a really important question. Jesus wants to know if people know who he truly is. And that's what he's asking us today. Jesus is interested in what you think. When he's asking you this question, he's not asking you the question about the person next to you and what they think. He's not asking about what your families think or your parents think or what your youth leaders think. He's interested in what you think. Not because he needs reminding by us or because he needs that validation from us. But because he wants to know what is in our hearts. He wants to say, do you recognise who I am? So today I just want to pause for a few moments to think of that answer for ourselves. Just between you and Jesus. If he was to take you to the perfect place, away from the busyness of life, away from distractions, and he turns to you and says but who do you say I am? Let us just pause for a minute and just between you and Jesus, just have a think about what your answer is. For some of you, as you were thinking, your answer may be, well, I don't know. That's okay. If you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian here this morning, or if you're new to church, then you probably don't really have a personal relationship with Jesus. But what I do know is that he loves you, and that he is so glad that you're here this morning, and he wants you to know him as your Lord and Saviour. For some of us here, you may be new to following Jesus, and that's been a, this is a question that you've had to answer recently and really have to think about when you've given your life to Jesus. I'd encourage you to keep asking Jesus to reveal more and more of himself in your hearts as you get to know him more. Maybe for some of you, you became Christians a long time ago and declared that Jesus is the Christ in the past. I'd encourage you this morning to keep reminding yourself of who you were coming to when you were coming to Jesus. He loves to hear you declare that truth over and over again, that he is the Christ, he is the Lord, he is your Lord and Saviour. It's not because he needs it, but because he is worthy of it. 
And maybe there's some here this morning who have been able to answer that question in the past, but as time has gone on, your view has changed slightly. Maybe circumstances in your life have made you wonder, well, who is God in this situation? Or you may have not seen him working in the way that you thought the Messiah would. These are all perfectly normal thoughts, and it's not a bad thing to relook at. Look at your heart when when you're looking to Jesus. But I want to encourage you that Jesus has never changed. Life may have changed, circumstances may have changed, but he has never changed. And he wants to remind you of that this morning. He wants to remind you that he is still the same God. Maybe if you said it in the past, he is still that same God today. So coming back to the text, in verse 21, after Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah, we can see what Jesus said next in verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers for the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So here Jesus is just repeating what the prophet said in the Old Testament of the saying of the coming Messiah. So if Peter truly believes that Jesus is the Christ, just like he just declared, then he must also believe that this will happen to his friend Jesus. That one day Jesus would be taken and tortured from his, by his enemies and killed and then raised to life. But Peter here is like, hold up, that is not going to happen to you. We will not allow it, Jesus. You're our friend, you're here, we're for you. And it says that Peter began to rebuke Jesus. So Peter, who often got it wrong, decided that Jesus, who never got it wrong, was now getting it wrong. Peter was so shocked that Jesus would say this about himself, that he started to rebuke him. For him, it just didn't add up right. So Peter was more than happy to have Jesus walking alongside them. He was more than happy for Jesus to perform miracles uh, with them. Um, But he was not happy that this was going to happen. Declaring that Jesus is the Messiah can look different in reality. And to him, it did. The idea that the Messiah would suffer and die was not consistent with the kind of Messiah that the Jews were hoping for. Peter had specific expectations that focused on the, on the coming Messiah, coming to restore Israel, of him leading many to God. And it was thought that he would, become, he would be a warrior king, much like King David. And then the idea that the Messiah would be this humble man and captured by his enemies and killed on a cross did not fit with what they thought was, he was going to look like. Is that the same for us here this morning? Have we ever expected Jesus to look or to act differently to how he is? Maybe we uh, sometimes might um, picture this Messiah that fits within our lives and our circumstances or had thoughts of um, him doing things differently because we think that it should happen one way, but actually they happen in a different way. Have we ever thought, well, God, if you did that instead, it would make much more sense to me. Or if you just do that one more thing, it would be really good for me. Have we ever forgotten that actually he is the one that we should change for, not the other way round? In verse 23, Jesus then responds to what Peter said, his rebuking. Verse 23, it says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. 
You do not have the mind, the mind, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So only just now had, Peter, uh, had Jesus been praising Peter for his declaration. And now he's saying, get behind me, Satan. They are strong words from Jesus. And this is because Peter, in his heart, in his heart thought that he knew better than God. He thought, well, this is not going to happen, Jesus. We won't allow it. And there must be a better way of doing things. Jesus, though, knew the plans of God. And he knew that the only way to restore and to truly heal hearts was for him to suffer and die. So P Peter, his close friend, challenged Jesus. When he was doing that, he was essentially doing the devil's work for him. The enemy didn't want Jesus um, to go through that. And that's not because the enemy would cared about Jesus or because he thought, oh, that would be a really horrible thing to do. But because the devil knew that there was power in Jesus. And he didn't want him to win and defeat the enemy. So Jesus is saying here, I don't want to be hindered by you. I don't want to be swayed by you. So his response was really serious when he was responding to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. They are strong words. But he did need Peter to understand the severity of his words. And he wanted Peter to see that this was going to happen. And that Peter's heart in that moment needed to change from his own human concerns and look to God and see what his plans were. So once Jesus had said that to Peter, he, it then says about him turning to the rest of his disciples because he wanted all of them to hear this. And this is what he wants all of us to hear today as well. <clears throat> Verse 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some, of, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus is saying here to disciples and to us, he says, whoever wants to be, so this is our choice. He said, whoever wants to be his disciple, then we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. So the disciples knew um, that the Romans used the cross for the most awful of punishments and deaths. And when someone was asked to carry a cross, it meant that they were ready to die on that cross. And Jesus, we may already know this, Jesus knew no sin. And he carried his own heavy cross, which led him to the, his death on that cross. And he went to die a criminal's death, a death that was in fact made for us, for each one of us. Where he took our place, where he took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our wrongdoing. And he took that on, on his own body. So he's saying here, are you therefore willing to also carry your own cross and die to yourselves and live for him? because of what he's already done for us. We must lose our lives here in this life to gain our life with God, which will last for eternity. Because when we die, this might sound obvious, we can't take anything with us. We can have the whole world here. We can have the best job, the most amount of pleasures that we can ever think of. But none of this will be with us when we pass away. None of these earthly things will save us. 
They might make it more comfortable for us living in this life, but they won't save us. The only thing that will save us is Jesus. By putting our trust in him and living for him. And it's not saying that we can't have the pleasures in this life because we know that God loves to bless us. But it's about whether we are willing to say, Jesus, you are my number one. And I choose to follow you, whatever the cost. And then laying that down. Laying all those things down that can easily become bigger than following Jesus. You might already know if there's anything in your life that you struggle to lay down. Maybe it's just the security of your job or your finances or your family or, or any situation. But Jesus is saying, lay those things down. Die to those things and trust in me because the reward that Jesus speaks of here for those who are Christians is gaining a life spent with God, a life without struggles, a life without pain. And this is the wonderful hope that we get to look forward to. But more than that, we get to spend eternity in Jesus' presence. And that is a life that we cannot lose. And this is his promise to us if we put our trust in him. So depending on what your answer to Jesus' question is, it is life-changing. It's, it's a really big deal. The cost of following Jesus is absolutely huge. It's not just saying that Jesus is the Christ, declaring that truth, but then making him fit around our own perceptions of who he should and who he shouldn't be. And, it, and expecting him to just solve all of our problems in this life. And then carrying on as if nothing changes. It's not like that. It should make us want to not live for ourselves. And it should make us want to turn away from all of our earthly desires and live for him and be changed by him because he has great plans for us. So as we come to an end, I just want to go back to verse 18, where Jesus says to Peter, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the first mention that Jesus actually talks about building his church. So the church is a people who believe and declare that he is the Messiah, the living God. It started with Peter proclaiming that Jesus is the anointed one. And the amazing thing is that we, that we surely find out after is that Peter made a mistake and he actually misunderstood Jesus. But Jesus still blessed him and he still used him to build his church. And he chooses to use us today. Even if we don't fully understand him, even if we mess up sometimes and misunderstand, he still chooses us. He wants us to be a people, a church, who are built on his firm foundation. He wants us to be built on his solid rock. And even when the Messiah looks different to how we imagined or how we would sometimes prefer him to look, he wants us to know that he is worthy of all of our lives. So are we willing to be people that say yes to him when he asks us to carry our cross for his sake and that the cost of that in, is in, that in this life is nothing in comparison to the blessing that we will get to enjoy in eternity. I wonder if the band could come back. Uh, we're going to take communion in a second. Um, and as we spend time sharing that with one another, I want you to, um, to pause and think again of that question that I asked earlier. Who do you say I am? 
I want you to really think of that for yourselves. And then we'll go into a time of worship. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, and you want to, then just spend a moment with him, asking him to reveal yourself to, to you. I believe that he wants to bring clarity to some of you this morning. I believe for some, he wants to speak to you and remind you to put your trust in him. To trust that he fully knows what he's doing and that he has great plans for you. Peter and his disciples didn't fully understand him and they walked with him daily, but he still used them and he still blessed them. So we might not fully understand who Jesus is, but he wants us to lean on his understanding, his Holy Spirit, and not rely on ourselves and our own understanding, but come to him and lean on his understanding. So as we spend time just, uh, yeah, with the bread and wine, bread and juice, let's just spend a moment between you and God. Let him take you to that place, that perfect place, to ask you, who do you say I am? And as you do that, let us remind ourselves of what he did on that cross for us. That he took our sin and our punishment on his shoulders. The bread representing his body and the juice, the wine representing his blood that he shed for us. Just spend a moment with Jesus thanking him that he did that for you personally. He's interested in what you think. <laughs>